0: Greetings, and welcome to another episode of the Hammer, and umpire podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. I appreciate you if you're a returning listener, and if this is your first time, well, I hope you like what you hear and you come back for another episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a variety of things. Uh, New NCAA mechanics for three- and four-man crews. Uh, We'll be talking about uh, umpire masks, what you might look for when you uh, are purchasing an umpire mask. Uh, I'll do an umpire spotlight on Al Barlick, the Hall of Fame umpire. Also, I'm going to talk about the benefits of yoga uh, for umpiring and stretching and flexibility um, that I've noticed anyway. And uh, finally, uh, another topic would be addressing coaches. How do you address coaches and how do you um, expect them to address you while you're conducting your games? So that's what I've got this week. Hopefully that sounds fairly interesting um, and you'll stick with me. And uh, see what I've got to say. Uh, So make sure that uh, if you're in your car, that your speakers are turned up loud enough to hear what I'm talking about. And if you've got your earbuds in or your AirPods on, make sure they're working properly. For this week's episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Recently, the NCAA released their preseason guide and also their um, online clinic video. And they go over a variety of topics, and many of them pretty interesting, actually. Um, But there are a few changes that will be coming out in the new book for 2020 mechanics. And um, they have some changes for three and four-man. For three-man, they want uh, U1 and U3 to be... um, well positioned to see line drives hit at the feet of the first and third baseman when when those players are in their normal uh, position, they think that uh, you should be in a spot where you're within a distance. Um, you can just take a step or two forward uh, to make a call on those things. And I know that when I'm working those positions, um, and I've been taught um, to always be adjusting to where they are, you know, so that you're within a. Um, an angle and a distance that you can, you know, see a line drive at their feet. You know what? I can't remember the last time I saw a line drive at one of their feet, but you know, it's going to happen sometime and, and I'm going to be in the right spot. I hope. So the other thing is, um, that they mentioned is proper positioning for you one for pickoff plays at first base. So they want all umpires to start with their inside foot next to the foul line and not straddling the line. I guess this has been an issue with some people. Um, That's the way I was taught, so that's the way I do it. Um, But now they want that to be more of a uniform thing. And then um, the other thing uh, for three-umpire system is um, umpires aren't allowed to start in the infield and then run to a position out in the dirt uh, looking straight down the baseline during a steal play at second base. So basically, all steal plays must be taken Know, either between the you know the b and c starting positions you, you can't uh i've seen some major league guys you know on four man obviously uh be behind the base and come down and and you know get that look coming straight in almost like working the wedge or working the base which is great but um when you're in three man um that makes you vulnerable to um you know other rotations and things like that so i guess that's the reasoning for for that as far as um, some changes for four-man mechanics, again, they want the U1 and U3 to be in the position to see the line drives at the feet, just like in three-man. But the other change that they have is for U2 um, and his uh, line drive coverage, his or her, I guess. Um, so what they want is um, when they, uh, when U2 is positioned in the outfield, they always want you now to work over the inside shoulder of that infielder that's closest to second base so that you can you know, rule on line drives in, in your coverage area. Another change, um, or at least emphasis, for man is on fly ball coverage. And so they do not want umpires to automatically go out on fly balls um, with or without runners on base. So umpires are expected to you know, read fly balls, and go out on trouble balls, you know, and got to do your pause, read, and react, and, um, you know, if in doubt, you go out, but uh, they want you to do the practice the way that you're supposed to, and not just try to have it more of a mindless, like, oh, I go out on every fly ball when, when nobody's on base, or those kind of things. Another four-man emphasis is when there's a home run hit with uh, nobody on base, that it's not necessarily Necessary anymore to have the entire crew fully rotate. Um, U3 can go out, you know, down the line and then come back to third base for a touch um, at that base. He has enough time to do that. Um, if U2 goes out, U3 can easily take all the touches at second and third, right? And if U1 goes out, either U2 uh, or the plate umpire should have the touch at first, you know, because U1's not going to be able to get back in time to see that um, if he went out. Um, an additional thing, um, proper positioning for U1 for pickoff plays at first base. You know, umpires should start with their inside foot next to the foul line, just like they're talking about in three man. They want you to do that in four man as well. Um, and then umpires aren't allowed to start in the infield and run position out in the dirt, you know, looking straight down the baseline. Um, You've got to take steel plays from B and C, just like they're talking about in uh, three man. And then also, if U1 goes out, and U2 slides toward first uh, to take R1 back into first, U3 will then slide immediately into second base and be ahead of any potential play that may develop ahead of the runner at second base. So they want that change as well. And finally, um, U2 will no longer shift over toward third base with less than two outs. So like in this situation, U2 is required to be on the left side of second base, uh, and using this new mechanic, U2 will... Retain his normal coverage of having all trouble balls in the outfield in the V um, from left to right field. And additionally, U2 will be in a better position to take a batter runner back to first uh, should U1 go out. So U2 should always remain over the shortstop inside, you know, left shoulder closest to second base to help with all line drive coverage. So those are some of the um, highlights of the mechanics changes that will be coming up in the new CC a uh, manual. Recently, Referee Magazine had an article about how you address coaches. Uh, Like, what do you say? Do you say their first name? Uh, Do you say coach? Do you say skip? Uh, Do you say coach so-and-so, whatever their last name might be? Uh, I'm interested to know what you guys think about that. Um, How do you do things? You know, leave me a voicemail, let me know. Um, personally I usually just say coach. If I happen to know their first name, which I do like to know their first name, um I, I address them by their first name and I like it when they address me by my first name. Now in this particular article they talked about how maybe that's not so good. Um I I think that if you're only addressing one coach by the first name and the other one you're not or you're not attempting to, then I, I can see that being a problem. Um they also mention, you know, like sometimes you're having a your pregame meeting or such and, uh, you know, they're they're giving a hug and they're like, hey, how's it going? And they're really getting into, you know. Like they just had a family reunion or something like that. I think that's not good. I don't like that. Even if you know the person pretty well, it should be professional when you get up there. You know, shake their hand, say, hey, how you doing? You know, that that's fine. But it shouldn't be like you guys, you know, are going to go out and have a beer or something afterward. Um, even if you are, it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I do find that it's it's harder for coaches to yell at a person's first name than ump or blue, or those kind of things, and that's another issue we'll talk about what they, what they say to us. But, um, and I think that people respond better, coaches in particular, uh, when you do address them by the first name because that's who they are. you know if it's Bill, you say Bill, this is what I've got here. How, what can I help you with? You have a question, Bill? Those kind of things. Um, I think that goes a long way. Um, I think it makes it more personal and it, it's harder to be, personal when you're addressing somebody by their first name. I don't think this should be the case necessarily, uh, with any of the players except for your catcher. I mean, I, I, address my catcher by their, my catchers by their first name as well. And, um, I think that puts you on a little bit more, um, working relationship kind of thing. All right. Um, you know, is it okay to call them, you know, Coach Smith or whatever they might be? Certainly, that's fine. If you forget their first name, calling them coach is fine. But there's a certain distance to that as well. And and I think that uh, that's not always good. Now, what should uh, coaches or players uh, say when they're addressing us? Well, preferably, I'd like a coach to call me by my first name, to call me Kevin. I, I prefer that, number one. Um, players, I prefer them to call me Sir, or if they happen to know my name is Kevin, they can call me Kevin. I mean, I prefer my catchers to call me by my first name or sir, not blue. And I got an umpire signer in my area who that's one of his biggest pet peeves. And he's passed it on to a few other people that uh, don't call me blue. He's Even had t-shirts made up for his camps talking about not calling him blue, especially when like if we're working collegiate ball, we're wearing black most of the time. So it's like very annoying when somebody calls you blue and you're not even wearing blue. But nonetheless, um, it's it can be slightly disres- disrespectful, I think, you know. Um, and it, it's a, it makes you more of an easy, easier target. I think that's why that it's a better thing if they're calling you either sir or they're calling you by your first name. And you're the one that has to um, start that. You don't want to be a jerk about it necessarily unless they continue to do it just just to try to get under your skin or something, but you say, Hey, no, you just call You can call me Kevin or you can call me, sir. You don't have to call me blue, you know, that kind of thing. In a in a nice cordial kind of way, at least initially, um, if it becomes more of a problem, I guess, you know, you can be a little more forceful about it. But then again, you know, you got to pick and choose your battles. I mean, is your battle going to be what they're calling you all the time? Or are you just trying to do your job? So you, you got to kind of, um, kind of make some good decisions when it comes to those kind of things. Frequently, um, I will look up the names of head coaches if, if I haven't had them before and uh, see what their names are. Um, I don't particularly care that much about the assistant coaches. If they tell me their name, I usually remember and might say that, but I'm not in the business of talking to assistant coaches um, I might look up the names of the catchers if it's a, a collegiate game I'm doing, you know, because you can have more easily accessible rosters. Uh, high school, that's a little bit tougher. Um, and obviously other leagues, that's tougher, but uh, kind of knowing them going in, or if, you know, if you're, especially if you're working the plate, you say, Hey John, how's it going? Yep. Good to see you. You know? And it's like, all right, Bill, Hey, how you doing? And they're like, wow, this guy knows both our names. Sometimes, you know, I've never had a coach and I know their name as soon as I come out there and they think they're like, well, oh, good to see you again. I'm thinking, well, buddy, I've never, <laughs> I've never seen you before in my life, but I'm glad you think that you've had them before. And if they think that they've had you before um, and then they don't remember anything bad. They think, well, this guy must've been pretty good because I don't remember anything bad about him. So he must've been all right. <laughs> that's what I figure. So I, I've had that happen on several occasions. So, uh, I think it's worthwhile to, uh, look up some coaches names and at least know them in case you want to use that. Um, so that's just a little piece of advice from my end, I guess. Anyway, let me know what you think about this topic. Uh, send me a, a voicemail or send me an email and, um, let me know the, um, the kind of terminology that you use as far as addressing coaches and uh, the kind of terminology you expect from uh, the players and coaches when you're working a game. And uh, I'd be interested to see how, you know, how that works out for you and, and what you think is best. I'd like to talk to you about probably your most important piece of equipment. That's your mask. So I guess the first thing you got to decide is, are you going to have a hockey-style bucket-type mask or are you going to have more of the traditional face mask that catchers and umpires wear? Personally, I wear a more traditional mask. Um, I think it looks more professional. Sorry if you don't agree, but I like it when I take my mask off. I've got my hat on, and I, I think that this looks better and uh, I still feel like with the mask that I own that I get the protection that I need. So, um you know, I guess the the first thing you look at is as far as is that is, you know, the weight. A lot of people look at the weight, you know, how heavy is a mask. And and the best thing you can do of course is try masks on. If you go to a store or if you're at a clinic or something and and one of the uh providers of equipment are there, um then you can, you know, try on different masks and see what you think. Because, you know, one pound to 1.6 pounds or something, that can make a big difference, you know, and some people are a little bit more finicky about that. So that's important. What kind of harness does it have? Um, A lot of the materials that they make these masks out of are lighter weight now anyway. So you usually don't get as heavy a mask as they used to um, many years ago. So, however, though, the most important thing is protection. You know, what's the mask that's going to be, Most likely to protect you from getting a concussion because that's the thing that will end you very quickly as far as your umpiring career and also could cause you troubles throughout your whole life. So, um, you know, you have to kind of do a little research on this. I mean, masks are expensive. We're talking, you know... Hundreds of dollars potentially, and uh, you want something that you're going to make a good investment in. So look at what they say. What do they have? Some kind of testing? Do they have ratings? Have they tried these things out? I mean, you you know, you can believe them or not believe whatever their findings are, but it's good to see what they say. You know, how how fast of a pitch can it take, or or a ball can it take off the mask and uh, still give you a chance to not get a concussion? Nothing's going to be perfect. But uh, do whatever you can do for that. And, uh, you know, make your, your best gut decision. And the next thing is um, the comfort of the padding, right? Uh, some masks, they feel a little bit different on your chin or your forehead or wherever they might be. Um, obviously, you want padding that is giving you good protection. But the, um, the level of the padding, you know, what is it made of? What kind of leather is it made out of? If it's made out of, I don't know, doe skin or calf skin or whatever it might be, um, that makes a difference too for some guys. Um, another important thing um, is the vision it gives you. Some masks, the way that the frame sits is you know closer or farther away from your face. You know maybe the uh, angle of the bars and stuff. Um, so you want as much vision as possible um, and the lowest profile that you can get um, that's comfortable for you with the most protection. So th- this can be slightly different for most guys. Um, and then of course through all that, uh, obviously you know the best value. You know what's the kind of thing that. Uh, is going to work for your budget and also give you the most protection? And is it the kind of mask that's going to be around, that if you need a harness replacement or padding replacements, um, are you going to be able to find those fairly easily at a reasonable price, or is it just gone and you can't find it, you're going to buy a brand new mask anyway? So that's um, the most important stuff there. I was told by a minor league umpire that uh, you should probably replace your pads um, once a year because you take different... You know shocks and hits with those, um, and then they will probably give the, your your best performance if you're able to do that. So the mask that I use, Force Three mask, uh, they're about twenty bucks to replace those, so that's pretty reasonable. And uh, finally, you know what kind of um, accessories can work with your mask? Is there a throat guard that works well with it? Um, is there a sun shield? Um, you know, how does it fit on particular hats that you might use. Those are things to keep in, uh, in mind when you're purchasing a mask and uh, seeing, you know, what kind of long-term investment it is. Um, like I say, I use the Force 3 mask. I've got the second version of that out and I really like it and I think it saved me from a couple of concussions. I'd like to know what, uh, what you guys use out there. Uh, send me a, an email or uh, leave me a voicemail and let me know what mask you use, and why you think it works really well for you. I've mentioned before that I try to do uh, stretching at least a couple times a week, uh, particularly during the off-season. And I do that by going to my local YMCA and doing yoga classes. And I know some of you, you know, you're thinking... Yoga. I'm not doing yoga, but uh, I think it's really helped me out quite a bit. And uh, I'd like to just mention a few of the stretches that I do. They have different names for yoga poses, they call them, that uh, might be beneficial to you as well. I've had issues with uh, my knees. I had surgery on those. Um, I've had back surgery uh, many years ago. And uh, I definitely think that yoga is one of the things that has kept me um, pretty. Healthy and fairly flexible. So, um, some of the poses that um, I like to focus on deal with things that I notice I have issues with when I'm umpiring. My hamstrings, particularly. All right, my low back, making sure that that's loose. Um, my calves, um, my knees. So, those are the kind of things that I want to do, and I want to make sure that um, all of my body parts I guess are moving in the correct way you know like my back's moving in the right way I'm not having too much tension anywhere like in my shoulders Um, and that uh, my ankles are working well my knees are working well those are very important things and I try to do these stretches you know a little bit here and there like before I umpire just after I umpire to make sure that I'm continuing to say limber so that I don't incur some injury. First pose I like to mention is uh, called Downward Facing Dog, um, and you can look all these up on the internet if you like to try to do them. But uh, I think it particularly helps with your shoulders and your back, and it helps me with my calves to make sure that those are stre- stretched out, and as long along with my um, ankles helps get those stretched out, and it helps your hamstrings as well. So that's the first pose I like to mention. Um, next pose I like is uh, they call it Triangle. That particularly helps with my low back to kind of readjust it um, and uh, also stretch out your hamstrings. So, that's a good one to do at times. Um, they have different warrior poses. There's Warrior 1, which is good for stretching your back as well and um, making sure that your left and right lateral type movements are working well. And then there's Warrior 2, which also is a good um, um, kind of stretch and readjustment for your lower back. All right. Um, I also like um, triangle pose that's like the best one I think for uh, making sure that your hamstrings are stretched out well Um, your hamstrings are you know connected uh, as I've discovered over the years with your lower back so if your hamstrings are stretched out well you're less likely to have some issues with your lower back if that's a problem for you. Another pose that's uh, beneficial is pigeon pose, and there's a few ways to do this. It's kind of like doing a figure four, Um, but that's particularly helpful for stretching out your hips. Uh, I find that if your hips are stretched out, particularly when you're working the plate, that really seems to help quite a bit. Uh, So I do that whenever I can as well. And then also um, I find that chair pose, which is kind of like doing a pose while you're standing, that like you're sitting in a chair, really helps... um, with uh, strengthening your hips and, and your your thighs and your lower leg, you know, basically all your legs, I guess, uh, for working your squats and stuff when you're working the plate. Um, I, I like doing that throughout the off-season. I think that helps strengthen things. And then finally, um, child's pose, uh, which you can look that up too. That's a very beneficial pose. Um, it's kind of a resting pose, but that's a good pose to use, especially after you um, work a game because um, it kind of loosens up your lower back and kind of stretches out your, your whole back, but particularly your lower back, um, and also your knees and legs and stuff. So anyway, those are a few poses that I think are beneficial. Those are ones I try to do, um, before or after I'm working games. And, um, I try to go to the yoga practice at the YMCA because it makes me do it. You know, if I just say, oh, I'll just do it two or three times a week on my own. I don't know. I'm not as consistent that way. But if I know I'm going on Wednesday and I'm going on Sunday morning, that's usually what I do. Um, and then I try to fit in other times if I can, Um, then I'm I'm consistent that way. And that's an hour of doing it because it's it's hard for me to do it for a whole hour on my own. I might do it for like 10, 15 minutes, but uh, an hour of, and they do other types of poses and things too that are um, useful. Um, But I try to combine that with uh, some cardiovascular, mainly walking and uh, making sure that I'm stretched out the best I can so I can work as long as possible. So, If you have any questions or comments about those things, feel free to send me uh, an email or um, leave me a voicemail through the anchor.fm application. This episode's umpire spotlight is focusing on Al Barlick, the Hall of Fame umpire from Springfield, Illinois. Uh, Known as one of the loudest umpires in the game, uh, Barlick was uh, respected by his peers and players alike for his his hustle, stern demeanor, and a strict but fair interpretation of the rules. Uh, He called his first All-Star Game in just his second Major League season before serving in World War II with the United States Coast Guard from uh, 1943 to 1945. During 27 seasons as a National League umpire, uh, Barlick would call seven All-Star Games and seven World Series. So very impressive. Um, His rise to becoming one of baseball's most revered umpires kind of started at the bottom of a coal mine in Springfield, Illinois. In 1935, Barlick helped his father in uh, Springfield's Peabody Mine uh, when a friend asked if he could fill in as an umpire for the local municipal league games. Typical story some guy filling in and finding that they have a niche for umpiring and then going from there, right? Five years later, Barlick debuted behind the plate in a doubleheader at Shibe Park, becoming one of the youngest umpires in Major League history at age 25. He was filling in for Bill Clem, who was uh, out with an injury. Bill Clem was always a big proponent of Barlick, and he said that the boy is a natural. He said if Barlick's grandmother and his worst enemy were out there on a Opposite sides of a ball game, he'd call everything the way he sees it, favoring neither side. He's going to be the best umpire in history. I don't know if he's the best umpire in history, but he did make it to the Hall of Fame, so he's definitely one of them. Anyway, after he returned from the Second World War, he was a crew member for the 1946 World Series at just age 31. Throughout his career, he was uh, part of many historic moments. He was the first base umpire and stood right behind um, Jackie Robinson when he debuted for the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15, 1947 and and broke the color barrier. He worked six no-hitters along with the first games at uh, Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles and the Astrodome in Houston and then the new Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. He was also a crew member for the first National League Championship Series In 1969, in which the Miracle Mets from New York beat the Atlanta Braves. Um, He was paid a compliment by many people saying that um, the greatest testimony to Barlick was what is said about any good umpire and, and what's said about a good umpire now that you never knew that he was there. He just went about his business, did an excellent job, the game unfolded the way it was supposed to, and he really had. No say on uh, who was the winner or the loser. In 1961, there was a uh, poll conducted by the Sporting News to determine, um, you know, the the best umpires in the, each league, the National League and American League, and they determined that Barlick was the most respected umpire in the National League among managers and coaches. Um, because you know, Barlick wasn't a real big fan of the honor and the uh, polling. He said that the very idea of rating is unfair and that it places labels on hardworking officials who always try to do a good job. And as we know as umpires, um, some of the guys that maybe get a bad rap by coaches or players or whoever um, really are a good umpire. They just kind of do what they need to do and they're not out there looking for a popularity contest. One of Barlek's favorite players uh, that he worked for was Stan Musial. Not surprising, Stan Musial was a class guy, and uh, in September nineteen sixty three, Barlick requested that he get to work Stan Musial's final game. But true to his unbiased character, Barlick, um, you know, he wasn't giving Musial any any you know favors or anything during the game, and called him out on strikes in his first at bat. So you know that's typical of Al Barlick. I mean, he said, I-, "I think I earned the player's respect, and that's the ultimate in life, isn't it?" I didn't care if they liked or disliked me as long as I had their respect. I think that's something all of us can take away from Al Barlick. In 1963, Barlick was um, very important and instrumental in helping to organize the first umpire's union, which, uh, as we've seen through the test of time, has been um, very favorable to current professional umpires. So throughout his career, he was a vocal advocate for you know better pay, and respect, uh, for game callers. He says, uh, we have, we have to shoulder the too much blame. He said, you know, yeah, all we do is enforce the rules. We don't write the rules. We just make certain none are violated. I'd say that's what everyone's trying to do in our current times as well. Barlick's final major league season was 1971. And during that year, the, um, umpire of the year award was given to him by his colleagues now unlike the award that he was given back in the early 60s he really cherished this because it was given to him by fellow umpires uh, which as we all know means a lot more if a fellow umpire tells you that you did a good job or likes the way he did something or respects you in a certain way that carries a lot more weight than if you know a player or coach or somebody says something to you for his accomplishments, uh, Al Barlick was uh, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989 and um, was alive at that time and able to um, partake in the ceremony and give a speech. And he said that that was, um, it was just a miracle to him that he made it that far. And I'm sure that everyone, if, if you were able to make it to the Hall of Fame, you probably would think that was the case as well. Barlick's Hall of Fame plaque reads, Albert Joseph Barlick, umpire, National League, 1940-1971. to Earned respect of peers and players alike with booming, basso calls, clear and decisive hand signals, knowledge of rules, proficiency on balls and strikes, ability to anticipate and then handle rough situations, and unceasing hustle, professional umpire for five decades, and at age 25, one of the youngest to reach majors where he worked 27 full seasons so that is this episode's umpire spotlight hall of fame umpire l barlick well once again we've come to the end of another episode of the hammer and umpire podcast As I always say, I appreciate you sticking with me to the end because I know not everybody always does that. Sometimes they just listen to half and then they, uh, you know, shut it down, which is fine if that's all the time that you have. Well, this is our ninth episode, which is actually pretty significant because, um, based on the research I've done, a lot of podcasts end after about seven episodes. They don't get to the eighth because the podcast maker or host or whoever uh, gets burned out and doesn't make any more podcasts and then it just sits there so I, I i'm in the long haul for this you know i i've got a bunch of ideas still rattling around in my head on on what uh i can do i think a lot of them are topical as far as what time of year it is you know like right now i'm doing more um you know off season kind of stuff, but obviously, once we get to more preseason stuff, I can talk about those things. You know, in the middle of the season, there's always certain issues to talk about. And of course, postseason, um, there's different things to talk about as well. So um, I, I would appreciate any kind of feedback that you guys give for me as far as what kind of topics you want me to cover. I, I think um, I've, I've done a pretty good job with that, um, you know, listening to um, some feedback that I've gotten so far. Um, I appreciate all my listeners. You know that I've uh, gained. I, I get a good number of listens every week, and uh, you know throughout the United States primarily, but also in Canada, and New Zealand, and Indonesia. So that's pretty cool that uh, we got different people in different parts of the world listening. You know, and we're wanting to learn about baseball umpiring. So you know, it's all pretty good. You know, I feel pretty happy with how things have moved so far, and I'm going to try to keep moving it forward. So I appreciate you listening, and uh, until next time, keep calling strikes.